This is the new Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 High FM. Tony Leon is the author of five books and is the longest serving leader of the official opposition in the parliament of South Africa. He's also served as a South African ambassador to Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay, and he is a qualified attorney and a constitutional law lecturer, and he's currently the chairman of Resolve Communications in Cape Town, and he has recently written a book called Future Tense, Reflections on My Troubled Land, which looks at South Africa, its situation, and some of the issues that it is facing. And uh, I think that probably is a great place to start the discussion because, of course, we have a local government election coming up just in a few months, nearly under six months from now, which may have very profound effects on where the country goes. So, Tony, maybe start off by telling us, do you think the ANC is going to win the elections? We're talking to Tony Leon today, the author of Future Tense Reflections on my troubled land about his experiences in the past and what he thinks it might mean for the future. And in fact, Tony, one of the books that I think seems to have changed your perspective was the one where you went to Argentina and had to work uh, as part of now the Department of International Relations and Cooperation. I remember in one of your previous books, you called being an ambassador a, a glorified town mayor. I'm not sure if you still held that view after being in, in Argentina. Uh, but but did writing this book also give you a different perspective in terms of our politics, looking at everything in, in a totality, as it were? Oh, absolutely. Look, uh, one of the chapters in my in my current book, uh, Future Tense, is about our foreign pol- policy, which is called Friends Without Benefits: League of Losers. I was uh, South Africa's diplomatic uh, head of mission in three South American countries, so there were no particular controversies in our foreign policy in that region of the world. But what I describe in this book has been the erosion of foreign policy by South Africa, where we had a very strong moral purchase in the world in 1994 when Mandela was president. And we now have very little influence in the world because basically we've become part of the anti-Western clack of nations. And I describe some of the, uh, some of the follies in that regard, Venezuela being one. But Israel, perhaps, and this might be of some interest uh, to your listeners, being the prime example because the only country in the entire universe where South Africa has any human rights uh, uh, interest about the plight of the Palestinians, which is fair enough if you apply a consistent approach. But, of course, we don't. Uh, I come to the conclusion, given the self-harming nature of our foreign policy, Benji, that, in fact, it's actually actuated by an anti-Western bias in the sense that Israel is seen by Durko, the department, and by the ANC government as being an outpost of the West in the middle of Araby, being a sort of outpost of America, uh, given that our foreign policy is entirely based on relitigating the old Cold War, which is a hopeless position for a country like us with the needs that we have, with the investment we require, with the attention the world that we need to actually posture. But there it is. And I illustrate some of that uh, <laughs> with a chapter called Holier Than Thou Holy Land, which uh, might be of interest to some of your listeners. You also make the point more widely that 75% of, of of our investment still comes from Western nations. So it does seem like a bit of a, a counter uh, real politic position for, for a country which which does have to engage with Europe and America and 
uh, a number of other Western nations, and yet we spend a lot of time bashing them as well as Israel. I wonder, from your perspective, and do you think that these countries are starting to get a bit frustrated with our positions on this? Well, you know, I think they just lose interest and uh, turn their attention elsewhere. Look, on the other hand, South Africa remains, despite some of the best efforts of our political lords and masters to drive it into the ditch, a significant country in Africa because we have a very developed economy. We have uh, still have a skill set in this country. We have deep liquid markets and all the other uh, paraphernalia of uh, a first world success, which does still exist in South Africa. So to the extent that the world remains focused on Africa when it is, South Africa remains a player for that reason. But given what we could be, as opposed to what we are and where we are, um, we have scored, as you suggest, a number of own goals. And I, you know, I, I, there's an anecdote I tell in the book about the treatment of Hillary Clinton when she was the foreign, well, was the United States Secretary of State and was trying to come to South Africa from Malawi and, and how she was treated in terms of the landing of her plane. And I contrast that with how the Gupta's wedding party was received at Vatikluf. And it's quite extraordinary because I, I think it shows an almost juvenile delight that some officials have in trying to humiliate the hyperpower of the world, the United States. And, of course, it is a ridiculous posture, and it does a lot of harm. But there it is. It's, uh, it's uh, perhaps something that people can reflect on and think, you know, if you were a more engaged and serious player in the world, you would achieve much more for your country. Which you did uh, remarkably well uh, in Argentina. I thought that was, a, in that book, a very interesting case study on what South Africa can offer when, when we apply the right kind of lens to our foreign policy positions. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I it's not very difficult because uh, if you go out with a view to selling your country and selling its products and its people and its soft skills and hard skills, you can do well. But I'm afraid a lot of our uh, attention in foreign policy is on what you might call gesture politics. And that usually re- results in being a very costly exercise. I want to turn my attention to economics uh, for a moment. Uh, I noticed that the previous presidential candidate for the United States, current uh, front runner for the city of New York mayor, uh, who is Andrew Yang, he, he made his name a little bit in his, some of these presidential races on uh, the, the UBI, uh, a, a universal basic income, which is an interesting proposition for a country like America. But it seems to me that in South Africa, that has also caught on and uh, we seem to be having more and more calls for wider and wider basic income grants, general kinds of income grants. And I just wonder where your, what your perspective is on on that issue, but also more generally on our on our country's economy and, and what we have to do to make it work? Well, that's a big question. I, a, lot, a lot of my book looks at our uh, economic underperformance. Uh, I'll just give you one startling statistic, which uh, I was uh, forced to confront because I, so when I started jotting down uh, some facts and figures and thoughts on this book, which was towards the end of 2019, I was rather alarmed to note that South Africa was borrowing in the bond market a billion rand per day, per working day, to fund our deficit because we uh, spend on all these programs, 18 million social grants, uh, ridiculously high uh, wage increases for public servants who mushroomed and ballooned in number while services declined. 
we're borrowing a billion rand a day to fund this. And obviously, when I went to do edit the book at the end of last year, so that's just uh, five months ago, we were, in fact, borrowing for the same purposes, two billion rand a day. So our borrowing needs had doubled in a year in terms of paying back what we borrow from the bond market. And uh, it's not sustainable. And if you keep borrowing to fund your current expenditure, you're going to land up in what they call a debt trap. And that is the biggest and most alarming feature of our economic profile. Now, the only way to overcome that is to do things that create and foster and nurture economic growth, whether it's on your supply side, like your tax rates or tax breaks. And, you know, we do a lot of stupid things in that regard. I was involved commercially in uh, the 12J uh, scheme, which was uh, an idea that you give tax incentives to people who invest in things like hotels and building projects. Well, that was scrapped by the National Treasury as regards when it comes to its end at the end of this month rather than extending it. And that's a small example with much larger meaning. So instead of doing things that promote business, promote growth, promote economic activity, we stifle them. And um, there is, of course, a little bit of light. Uh, Ramaphosa yesterday, you know, stage four load shedding, he finally decided to release some independent uh, energy providers onto the national grid after the disaster of ESCOM. Um, but, you know, you need far more of that. So I think the real danger isn't that we are a country where 70% of the population is in need. And staggeringly, last week, the unemployment statistics suggested that 7 out of 10 of young South Africans under 24 don't have any work and given up the prospect of looking for jobs. But how are you going to change that? Well, you can't keep throwing money at the problem uh, because you don't have any money. So you've got to go for the factors that create growth and encourage investment. And we know what they are. They're very straightforward and in plain sight. And there have been dozens of studies and real-life examples. But there are a lot of vested interests, Benji, which prevent that from happening. And unless the government has the courage to confront those uh, roadblocks, we're not going to be able to do anything. I think never mind a universal basic income. It's not going to be sustainable to simply fund the social grants program, which has almost been a compensation for the jobless nature of our rather low levels of growth at the moment. Now, when you were head of the opposition through the Mandela years and into the Mbeki years, it, it may have perhaps seen now to be a little bit false, but it was kind of the era of the Rainbow Nation and the country trying to unite and, and get together. And, and there was a, a a spirit of non-racialism that was the core, particularly to the Constitution, but also to, I think, many of the, the political parties, including some elements of, of the ANC. And it does feel in the last particular, say, decade that race has returned, not just here, but almost globally as a forefront of, of political thinking around the world. And I just want to get your perspective on, do you think that that's a, a correct assessment or, or is it just nostalgia on my part? And, and how do we, we get away from, from that kind of, of thinking and perhaps back to the, the sort of founding ideas behind the Constitution? Oh, I think it's an absolutely accurate assessment you've made, Benji. Look, I was privileged to be uh, in Parliament and have a lot of encounters with Nelson Mandela. I wrote a book called Opposite Mandela, describing and narrating some of those. And I think he was absolutely genuine in his non-racialism in his inclusivity, and I was the beneficiary of quite a lot of that, even though we had some very fierce disagreements. And Mandela didn't require you to agree with him to be uh, 
to have a relationship with him, which showed a degree of maturity and wisdom that seems to have escaped uh, his successes. I think it started with Mbeki, the re-racialization of South Africa, and it really was an attempt, I think, by him, and certainly accentuated by Zuma and Ramaphosa, certainly, to actually give up on the project of nation building and say, well, look, our country is 80% black. All we need to do is corral black voters to keep voting for us, and the rest can go to hell, which has more or less been the attitude of this government who treats minorities as inconvenient remnants of an apartheid past rather than as contributors and fellow citizens. And except, of course, their taxes are useful to government projects. But uh, that's unfortunate because it pushes people away. And uh, there's a brilliant Venezuelan economist whom I got to know quite well uh, when I was at Harvard in 2007 called Ricardo Hausman, who brilliantly assessed the fact that he's studied South Africa very closely that um, when you have a regime change in a multiracial country like South Africa and the minority previously held all the aces economically, politically, and socially, as white South Africans did, you inherit a stock of know-how. And you resent the fact that um, that know-how is in the brains and the people uh, who you might not like very much. Now, Mandela realized that actually it was useful and helpful to have uh, people who'd previously been advantaged to now help the disadvantaged, which is pretty common sense apart from any moral uh, uh, decency that might attach to it. Um, and you can't transfer the know-how from the people who have it to the people you think should have it, simply like extracting teeth, as uh, Hausman said. And so what's happened in South Africa is a million or so South Africans who had the skills, who had the mobility, have left the country, and, and many more are poised to do so now because they feel like bystanders in their own country. So I think that has been, uh, it might have been electorally advantageous for the ANC, although I don't even think that's so, because survey after survey suggests that for most South Africans, decent education, employment prospects, and public safety are far more important than issues of race. But in order for the ANC to keep its much uh, fragmented unity in one place, they bang the racial tom-toms. And, you know, it's uh, self-defeating like a lot else that's done by the government. And I think that uh, it's not just painful for those who are at the sharp end of renewed racial discrimination, but it actually harms the whole society. Instead of saying, look, we're all in this together, let's uh, make our contributions as best we can, and any South African who commits to the constitutional principles, as we agreed them in 1996, uh, is a full fellow citizen. But that, of course, uh, is perhaps asking a lot right now in the country condition we find ourselves in. Talking to Tony Leon today, he is the author of Future Tense, Reflections on My Troubled Land. We'll be back just after this. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review, talking to Tony Leon today, former head of the opposition and frequent author, talking about his new book, Future Tense. Talk about the future, Tony. You have a whole chapter of red flags, things we need to be worried about and should be looking out for as citizens, and you pay particular attention to the question of land. Interestingly, you, you published the book sort of already some time ago in terms of that debate, and it's 
It's moved on. Are you concerned about where we're going on the land question? Oh, I am, because, look, um, this attempt to once again unstitch the constitutional agreements uh, of 1993 and 1996 in relation to Section 25, the property clause, it will have a range of unintended consequences. It won't just be land. It will be uh, every form of property from movable assets to your stock exchange to uh, holdings to everything. And I think, you know, that was one of the founding compromises that we made between those who had and those who did not have, and can we build a bridge between the two? And I think that the property clause, as currently constituted, does precisely that. Now, you know, I don't know how this current process is going to finalize itself. It might be less worse than people uh, fear. Others, like the Institute of Race Relations, suggest it's going to get a whole lot worse. Um, but many examples of countries which uh, have undermined or destroyed property rights, and uh, South Africa has done a fair amount of damage already. If you look at what's happened with the nationalization of mineral rights, water rights, and so on, but this could be coming to your neighborhood soon. I don't want to be a scarecrow, you know, alarming people unnecessarily, but I think that we'll have to watch this very, very closely because I don't know of any country which uh, had a property rights regime which it then destroys and similar and thereafter achieves the kind of economic success and ambitions that this government has set for itself. There's a kind of double think at work here. So yes, it is a matter of grave concern. I am aware of the fact that a lot of the worst things that are anticipated don't actually happen. They're simply introduced to divert attention from other failings of government or the wish to make progress. But I do quote the last constitutional court judgment of Justice Edwin Cameron when he actually said, look, the problem isn't the constitution or the courts of law. It's actually the dysfunctional departments of government that are charged with our already ambitious land reform program who have failed the people who intend to benefit from that. And frankly, if you don't fix those things up, you can change as many parts of the constitution as you like. It will once again be the triumph of illusion over reality because the beneficiaries for whom it's intended to work will end up getting the short end of the stick yet again. Now, you devote a whole chapter in the book, which is relevant to people listening to this show on this station, to to the Jewish community. You talk about the fact that you served uh, under uh, Harry Schwartz and, and then and, and then moved on to the constituency represented by, by Helen Sussman. And first of all, there is some legendary law around around the engagements between those two icons in terms of their different thinking, which uh, sounds yeah, like they didn't get on. They didn't get on very well. That's a short. Time. Were they politically different, or was it a personality thing? I think it was both. They were very look. They were both. I, I started off my political life as a city council for Bellevue, and Harry Schwartz was the MP for Yeovil, so I had a lot to do with Harry. And uh, then, of course, I took over the Houghton constituency from Helen. Um, and we were all members of the same party, the Progressive Federal Party. Yes, so <laughs> Harry was right-wing on, on security matters and left-wing on economic matters. And Helen Susan was, was the reverse. And, you know, without you – know, they were really extraordinary politicians and people. But they were also both, you know, quite prima donna-ish and – as politicians often are. So it, it was a bit overcrowded with both of them sharing the limelight, but they both were extraordinary contributors to South African public life. The point of the, of the chapter is really, as you say, like they're, they're all kind of part of the same tribe and, and thinking about the Jewish community in some respects, as well as the, the wider community. 
And, and it struck me that even then there is this question that Jews have about what is their future in South Africa and, and how do they best contribute? What would you say in, in, in answer to that kind of a question for people listening to a show like this? Well, of course, you know, Helen Sisman, uh, lived well into her nineties and Harry Schwartz's late eighties and they both died in South Africa. So, you know, they, they were absolutely committed to this country. But we were, you know, as I mentioned, we all three happened to be Jews with varying attachments to the religious practices of our community. But I think one of the reasons that Jews were attracted to a liberal party like the progressives and now the DA really was because it's an answer to the sort of blood and soil nationalism, which is the reference to race, because obviously when you're a very small minority, your chances of success and achievement and common citizenship can only happen in a country which uh, promotes the rights of individuals rather than simple groups. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why Jews tend to be attracted, apart from background reasons, to more liberal parties rather than nationalistic ones. Well, in South Africa, obviously Israel is a different set of conditions there. But what really got me thinking about Jews' place in South Africa was a book which I spent quite a lot of time in that chapter looking at called The Pity of It All, which is by Amos Elon, the late Israeli uh, historian. It looks at the history of the German Jews until 1932 when Hitler came to power. And the critical point he makes is that the rise of Hitler was not inevitable. There were two, there were two tracks running in Germany until 1932. The liberal, humane, social democratic one where actually Jews in Germany enjoyed much greater civil rights than most other Jewish communities elsewhere in Europe. And then there was the blood and soil nationalism and romanticism of the Nazis. And then the tracks crossed each other and the Nazis triumphed and the rest very sadly for our community and the world was history. But I, I was really struck by the fact that no one track is inevitable. And I look at that. Obviously, South Africa is not Nazi Germany. There's no comparison. But we also have two tracks running in this country. And the one track is, the you allude to in the introduction, the constitutional democracy that we have, the non-racial prospectus of our constitution, the uh the turning our back on the apartheid past. That's a very good track. And then you have the dirt track, the nationalistic racial one, the uh, excavations under our constitutional order. And the question is, which one is going to prevail in South Africa? And that, I think, is the unanswered question. Well, I'll give some suggestions as to which one I think it will be. So, Tony, the book is on sale. Uh, people can, can get it. Uh, you know, there's lots of extra time now for reading thanks to load shedding. So where can they find it? Oh, it's available all exclusive books, uh, future tense. Um, it's also available uh, from Take-A-Lot and from, I think, uh, Amazon on Kindle. So it's available, and you know, I really, it's, it's, it's written to both provoke and inform, and it's, uh, although it deals with some rather heavy lifting material, it's written, I think, in a reasonably light-hearted manner in part, so there are some interesting stories there, and anecdotes, and a few, uh, extraordinary, uh, human situations, which I think readers might relate to. And, and I hope that it adds to, you know, the store of knowledge for our community and this country. Well, certainly I enjoyed reading it and I think you would do, you would as well. Future Tense Reflections on My Troubled Land by Tony Leon. Tony, thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review and uh, good luck with the next book, perhaps. Yeah, I think I'll take a bit of a breather until that and get, get up the courage to write the next one. Thanks so much, Benji. And to all your listeners, have a great day. Thank you so much. Tony Leon. We'll be back just after the break.